Now let's read the first seven verses in uh, chapter 13 uh, of Romans. Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Amen. The, the word authority uh, does not warm many hearts in today's culture. A recent survey of the most and the least trusted professions put politicians second bottom. They, they just about edged it uh, above tabloid journalists. Local governments often vilified for cronyism, corruption, incompetence, and now, especially, we have uh, single-issue activists, especially things like climate change and so on, who present the governing authorities as short-sighted, self-interested, and inactive. But our disillusionment with authority goes wider than politics. It ranges uh, from the resentment many feel at traffic wardens and speed cameras to the low regard that referees have in sport, for example, John McEnroe in tennis, uh, Duncan Ferguson in football, uh, have both achieved kind of folk hero status for the way in which they aggressively uh, rebelled against umpires and referees. And at a different level, the work of tax inspectors is resented and judges are frequently criticised in the press. So authority is a very negative word in our culture. But remember that the Christian mind is not to be controlled by the culture. That is the, that's the big take-home message of Romans 12. Uh, in fact, all that we're going to be studying uh, in this chapter, uh, all that flowed on from uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 in chapter 12, uh, is an outworking of the principle that Paul states, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifices, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you see what's being said there? <clears throat> By disengaging from the, the mindset of the secular world 
and by having our mind renewed by this book, transformed by the Word of God, we offer worship to God by living distinctive, counter-cultural, radical Christian lives. And we can do that by the way we relate to authority. A distinctive Christian attitude to authority is part of our worship. So there's this radical view of, of worship. Yes, uh, essentially we come uh, to worship uh, on the Sunday, but our, our worship spills over to the whole working week, including uh, how we relate to politics. <clears throat> so that's how this, this section 1 to 7 fits into things. It's not an appendage. It's not simply uh, fitting another subject kind of at random into the letter to the Romans. It is the, the logical extension of having our minds renewed by God's word. Now the attitude that Christians should have towards authority was a very live issue in the first century. Remember that the church grew out of, of uh, the Jewish uh, faith and so for, for many Jews, there was a, a deep resentment against the fact that they were being ruled by the Romans. And the fact that Jesus is asked uh, in regard to whether it's lawful to pay tribute to Caesar is an expression of that. <clears throat> we know that uh, from Acts that uh, the Emperor Claudius kicked out the Jews from Rome and they were believed that there was a, possibly a kind of misunderstanding as to whether they were Jews or Christians, but anyway they were, they were removed from Rome and uh, there was a, a kind of general resentment uh, amongst the Jewish community of Roman rule. And of course the letter is being written to Rome the, the very centre of imperial government. So this is a, a real hot button issue. And similarly Christians found themselves treated unjustly by the authorities. Uh, just reflect on Paul's experience at Philippi, where he was flogged, uh, which was in contravention of the fact that he was a Roman citizen, and then imprisoned, really, for no reason at all. In our own day, uh, how we relate to, to government and politics is also a controverted subject. Uh, how do we live Counterculturally, with renewed minds, when all political parties seem to have an anti-Christian agenda, do we seek ways of withholding our taxes when governments use money for uh, promoting alternative lifestyles in primary schools, or spend it on nuclear weapons, or spread a spend on the spread of abortion? These are thorny issues, and in order to address uh, this whole question of how we relate to government, taxes, uh, political parties, Paul gives us this uh, key section in Romans and points to, uh, first of all, the general principle in regard uh, to the nature of government that has been established by God. Uh, secondly, he looks at the purpose of government uh, to reward right and to deter uh, evil. And thirdly, points us to the practice of submission by Christians in relation to giving honour and paying taxes. <clears throat> so let's begin with uh, the first one, the, the principle of why governments are there in the first place. 
Paul points to uh, an exalted source of governmental authority. For there is no authority except that which has been established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. So, governments of all shades, not just the government that you particularly like, but governments of all shades uh, represent an institution that has a divine origin. Paul's not writing about some idealized state that he hoped would appear. He's writing about the powers that exist. And Rome, the Roman Empire in the first century, had more than its own fair share of defects. And yet, it represented an authority given by God. Ordered government is not a human device, but is something of divine origin. It is God's buttress against the evil of anarchy. So we need to let that sink in. That's, that's, that's what Paul is stating here. It's God's institution, right? Now we need to be careful to nuance what Paul is saying. He's not saying that individual leaders are fulfilling his purpose simply because they are leaders. He is saying that God has established the institution of civil government. Listen to what uh, John Stott uh, writes on this. Paul cannot be taken to mean that all the Caligulas, Heroes, Neros, and Domitians of New Testament times, as well as the Hitlers, Stalins, Amins, and Saddams of our times were personally appointed by God, that God is responsible for their behaviour or that their authority uh, is in no circumstances to be resisted. Paul means rather that all human authority is derived from God's authority so that we can say to rulers what Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power, is it exousia, authority over me unless it were given to you from above. It's John 19, verse 11. Pilate misused his authority to condemn Jesus. But nevertheless, the authority he used to do this had been delegated to him by God. So you find uh, there's echoes of of this this principle that you have uh, an office, an institution, which has to be respected even though uh, the office bearers abuse it. You find that in the Old Testament. uh, Obviously, the kings of Israel were appointed by God. But even when they went badly off the rails, they were still to be respected. And that awareness, for example, that God had raised up Saul, that he was God's anointed, uh, explains why David was so reluctant to lay a hand on him. He was God's anointed. But it goes outside of Israel uh, to some very surprising figures in the countries around. Uh, Jeremiah 25 and 8, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> now that's, that's quite breathtaking, isn't it? My servant Nebuchadnezzar declares the Lord and I will bring them against his people. And again Isaiah 45, 1, 
uh, speaking of an, another pagan, the, the Persian emperor Cyrus, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him. So there is a, a salutary warning here that if, if the institution is God-ordained, then we're not to avoid our civic responsibilities by standing in moral judgment on government. Governments may fail to a greater or lesser degree, but by and large, they maintain a rule of law and order and prevent everyone simply from doing what is right in their own eyes. So we're not to resist the authorities uh, as authorities per se. What about the purpose of the governing authorities? Well, the purpose of authority is twofold. Uh, It is for promoting good and for exercising punishment. First of all, Paul says, rulers hold no terror for those who do right. If you do right, then you will be commended by the authority. Now, clearly, there's a problem from the point of view of the the persecuting emperors. Paul is speaking uh, in regard to a a kind of normal situation. His point is that we're not to give our allegiance to rulers grudgingly, but are to do it wholeheartedly, seeking to live with the favor of the state upon us and with a good conscience. In a normal situation, obey the laws and you can have a perfectly clear conscience and you can sleep at night. (coughs) You don't have to worry about somebody coming to your door, calling you up, serving a warrant on you. You don't have to hide behind doors, duck around corners or cross the street when you see somebody coming. You can walk through life with a perfectly clear conscience. That's what he's saying. And in this way, the authority does us good because it leads us to do good. But on the other hand, authorities are charged with the punishment of wrongdoing. They're set up by God to be an effective deterrent against uh, sin, essentially. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he, that's the magistrate, does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now that mention of the sword is very significant because it implies that God has sanctioned the use of penalties by the state. When someone is punished, the state is expressing God's wrath against wrongdoing. That's what's meant by saying that the state is an agent of wrath, verse 4. And there's a, there's a connection back to the, the previous chapter. Remember when we're told in verse 19 of, of chapter 12, uh, not to take revenge, but to, to, to leave room for God's wrath. There's a connection here. We're not to take revenge into our own hands because our responsibility as Christians is to love, uh, to love and to forgive our enemies. God will see to vengeance be placed to God's wrath. And that proper justice is either enacted by the state as God's representative, God's servant, or failing that, and very often it is failing that, God himself 
on the day of judgment, Christ, his appointed judge, will enact perfect justice. Now, it's clear, I think, that the verse says a number of things about the way that we deal with wrongdoing. I mean, this is a huge subject, but uh, there are, you know, there are the kind of the grains of, of, of a lot of wisdom in these verses. In the first place, the law should punish crime. Uh, the law ought to have a punitive function. That, that's, that's quite clear from it's on the surface of what Paul says here. But actually, uh, it goes against the grain of how many people understand the courts nowadays. Uh, there's a, a great tendency to think exclusively in terms of uh, safeguarding uh, society or rehabilitating the offender. But the word says that it is to be a punishment. There's a punitive element. Rulers have been set up to discharge God's wrath against crime. And secondly, the derived authority must extend, it seems, to capital punishment for capital crimes. Uh, the, the image of the sword is uh, clearly uh, one uh, which is speaking about the taking of life. Uh, it would be arbitrary to understand power of the sword to mean everything apart from capital punishment. The passage teaches that the one who is ultimately wielding the sword is God himself. His judgment is brought forward in time and is exercised on his behalf by the state. On the other hand, some Christians believe that uh, although capital punishment might be on the statute book, uh, that it need not ordinarily be enforced and the reason being uh, fear of a miscarriage of justice where the penalty is so ultimate and in order to give the wrongdoer time to hear the gospel and repent. And those who take that position point to the fact that uh, God himself protected Cain, the first murderer, from being killed. So there's that viewpoint. So Paul concludes in verse 5, if God's authority is behind the authority of the rulers and authorities, and Christians should submit willingly to them, uh, not just out of fear, fear of being punished ourselves, but gladly uh, in submission to God. We should be concerned to fulfil what's required of us and not simply afraid of being uh, caught out. Now you can see how uh, the attitude that is being encouraged here transforms our views of aspects of authority that we might be inclined to resent. Uh, think about uh, the vexed issue of speed limits. You know, it's very easy to, uh, to think that these are not terribly important things and we can justify what we're doing in different ways. You know, we're, we're, we're a minister trying to get to a, a meeting in time and, uh, and putting the foot down and hitting 80 and exceeding the speed limit and rationalising that we got to the meeting and it's important to be in time for meetings. Well, this teaching would challenge that kind of thinking. It warns us that we're not to divide our lives between 
the spiritual and worldly spheres, that God is worshipped in the observance of the law of the land, no matter how unimportant we think it might be. So in giving hearty obedience to the law of the land, we're giving our worship to God. God doesn't recognize this compartmentalizing of, of the sacred and the secular. All is sacred in God's sight. Think of another situation. Think of an office situation. Uh, the, the head of the office makes a rule that everyone is to record private phone calls. And by and large, the staff think that this is just silly. Nobody bothers. But as a Christian, uh, you will want to honour God by honouring the authority that's established by God in that office. You see where we're going? Uh, it's, not, it's not first and foremost about um, pleasing people. It's first and foremost about pleasing God. That's the great end of our lives. Uh, it's all about offering our lives as living sacrifices, having our minds renewed so that we're countercultural. We no longer think the way the herd does. We've, we've, set, we've come apart. We're allowing the Bible to transform our thinking. Now, does this mean that it's never right to resist governments? Well, this is a good example of how sometimes in Scripture uh, something is stated in what seems very absolute terms. Okay? So you might expect that the answer to that question is it never right to resist governments from this passage would be uh, no, it's never right to resist governments. That's what Paul is saying here. But it's an example of, of uh, a point being made in absolute terms, which actually is more nuanced when you look at other parts of the Bible. It's always important to take the Bible as a whole uh, as our guide, rather than kind of uh, take pluck passages uh, out on their own and not give them any hinterland, any context. We have to place it within context. That's particularly true here. Notice in verse 4 that the ruler is twice said to be God's servant. Now that gives the ruler a special dignity, but it also stresses that his position is, is one of a servant. It's a subordinate one. He's not to do whatever he wishes, but what the will of God is for him in his position. And there are times when governments and rulers command things which are so contrary to God's way and which uh, subvert justice and truth that they must be disobeyed. Okay, example. In Egypt, uh, the Hebrew midwives, the great heroines, disobeyed Pharaoh's instruction to drown the male Hebrew boys. Nebuchadnezzar, we've just seen that he is God's servant. He, he represents a set of authority. But his order to worship the image was disobeyed by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And later on, Daniel refused to pray 
to his God despite uh, Darius' edict. So he refused not to pray to his God despite uh, the edict. So it's not always a case that we submit to government. And, and the, the principle here is, is expressed in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, where Peter and John uh, are expressly forbidding, uh, uh, disobeying a command. They've been forbidden to preach the gospel and they refuse to obey. And when they're called in before the authorities and the ban is repeated, they give their, their reason, their rationale for civil disobedience. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. The history of, of South African apartheid is a mixed record uh, for professing Christians. Uh, on one occasion in 1985, P.W. Botha, the Prime Minister, used uh, Romans 13 uh, in order to bring Christian opposition into line. And some were cowed by this abuse of the scripture. But not all. Uh, uh, even earlier, in 1957, uh, Henrik Verwerd, the Native Laws Amendment, uh, sorry, he, he, was the, he was to become Prime Minister. Uh, then he was a Minister of Native Affairs. He announced the Native Laws Amendment Bill. And this bill had a, what was called a church clause, which would have prevented any racial association in church school, hospital, club, or any other institution or place of entertainment. Now, the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town at the time uh, was a, a gentle, rather scholarly man called Geoffrey Clayton. And he decided, along with his bishops, uh, along with reluctance and a great deal of apprehension, that they must disobey. And he wrote to the Prime Minister to say that if the bill were to become law, he would be unable to obey or to counsel our clergy and people to obey it. And tragically, the following morning he died, and some thought that the uh, death was caused by the, the pressure and strain of civil disobedience. Start of practice. These are exceptional situations. And in practice, authority may uh, veer significantly from the ideal and yet still command our respect and obedience. Remember the context. This is written in the context of the Roman Empire. And Paul concludes by looking at a number of areas in which uh, the practice of submission is worked out. It's worked out, he says, in relation to our taxes, in relation to our money. Because the authorities have full-time officials and these full-time officials giving, give themselves to governing, it follows that they should be supported by the rest of us. And we should not grudge our financial support of the state in this way. Taxes are not to be dodged, but are to be paid honestly. And while uh, none of us wants to pay more tax than is required, uh, we may give honestly and see that honest payment as an acknowledgement of God as part of our worship, in fact. When we fail to do that, we dishonour God. Sometime back I heard the, 
the story um, of a prominent American Christian uh, for the avoidance of doubt, no relation to the, the Graham family, a uh, prominent American Christian who came uh, for a series of meetings. He was met by a local Christian at the airport and they drove into town and as they did, the man looked at his watch to see the time and uh, his driver noticed that uh, he had three watches on his arm. So he said to him, what's the trouble? Do you have trouble telling the time? Uh, do you add all the, the, uh, the watches up, or what do you do? Said the man said, no, I'll tell you what. I found out that there's customs duty on the import of watches, so rather than put them in a suitcase where they would be found, I simply slipped them on my arm, and nobody noticed that they were there, and I came right through. And you know, the, the other one, the, the, the Christian who was picking him up, uh, commented later, from that moment on, that man's ministry was a dead thing as far as I was concerned. And I noticed that there was nothing of blessing in his meetings all the time that he was here. We can't separate our lives as though there was a a secular life and a spiritual life, a part of our life that God sees and part that he doesn't see, part of our life that's worship and part that's not worship. God uh, sees us as integrated people living integrated lives. Render tax where tax uh, is required. Give respect where it is owed. Now, as we said at the beginning, we live in an age where authority figures are rarely given respect, and as Christians we should be distinctive in the manner in which we speak of those in authority. Two obvious examples. Boris Johnson, widely vilified in Scotland because of his politics his privileged Eton upbringing. But Johnson occupies the position of Prime Minister and is therefore due the respect of the office, uh, whatever we think of his politics. Similarly with Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister. Uh, one Christian blogger who evidently dislikes her suggested in a blog uh, that so little is known of her private life uh, that it would suggest that she is something to hide. Now that kind of comment falls well short of the respect that is enjoined here. Respect where it is owed. Honour where it is owed. We ought to honour authority where honour is due. Now I think that that means that we're not to join in the, the cynicism of our age. We're not to join in the, the party that uh, simply is absolutely cynical about the political sphere. Let us pray for Christians who are in government. Let us pray for Christians who are often misunderstood, who are trying to make an impact for good uh, in the political realm. And if we regard the political sphere as honourable, which we should do, then let us encourage our young people to be engaged and to be involved in politics and as Christians to make their mark for the King of Kings in the realm of government to make their Christian difference. So here's an intensely practical channel for our worship. Let us give submission, honour, respect, support to those whom God has set in authority. Let's not do it to curry favour, but simply because we want to be 
God's people from head to foot. He calls us to honour. Let us do it wholeheartedly. May God bless to us his precious word.